Hey, what's up, everybody, and thank you for hitting the play button on this week's episode of The Derek Diamond Experience. This week, we will be looking into the world of film with writer-director Vito Labruno. But first, I want to tell you about a fantastic new album from my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers. It's called Murder Mystery Night and features 10 original tracks, including their new single, Carne Asada, and Twin Peaks, which happens to be the theme song of The Derek Diamond Experience. Murder Mystery Night is currently available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Music, and Spotify. And if you're interested in booking them for shows, like them on Facebook, just search for The Unicorn Wranglers. And don't forget to follow them on both Twitter and Instagram, and those handles are at Wranglers. That's at U-W-R-A-N-G-L-E-R-S. You're listening to the Nerd Cave Network. Derek, Derek. Diamond, diamond, diamond. Experience! Welcome to episode number 59 of the Derek Diamond Experience for the week of June 8th, 2015. As always, I am coming to you from the Gulf Coast of Pensacola, Florida. It's a bright and beautiful Sunday afternoon here in Pensacola. I'm sitting in the press box of Pensacola Bayfront Stadium. We are just hours away from kickoff between the Blue Wahoos and the Jacksonville Suns. And as usual, I'm kind of strapped for time to record this open. And the reason why I haven't gotten this podcast up sooner is because I keep struggling to just come up with the right words to say. I keep stumbling over myself. I get interruptions by certain people who work in the press box. I'm not going to mention names, but their name starts with Mary Jane Gardner, who is the media relations director of the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. And just when I thought I was going to get the open done, she kind of barges in on me. And uh, yeah, so I had to start all over again. So thanks, Mary Jane. I'm just kidding. Mary Jane does a great job here at the Blue Wahoos, as well as everyone else that works here. But as far as the rest of the Open goes, I don't really have much to discuss, but I do have a review I want to give for a film that I watched, and it actually has a lot to do with this interview. As I said at the top of the show, I'm going to be chatting with writer-director of film Vito Labruno, and I had the opportunity to watch his film he did called The Last American Guido, which he wrote and directed. And what the movie is about, without giving away any spoilers, it's about this guy named Tommy Lacerdo, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that last name right. But he's what you would call a guido, and in the 90s he was the king of the club scene in New Jersey. And with it now being the 2000s, he's got a receding hairline, he's older, and now he just works in a deli that his father owned. And his fiance cheats on him with a younger guy, so he decides to get back into the club scene and... Things have passed him by, and he meets another girl. And a lot of other things happen, but like I said, I don't want to give away too much of what happened. But some of my takeaways from the movie, uh, I really like the dialogue and the chemistry between the characters. The dialogue felt like it was real. like It, it felt like real conversations with you know certain characters that were talking with each other. It, it felt like a real conversation was happening. And, and that, to me, said... And that, to me, speaks volumes about the writing that Vito did on this film. And something that is kind of overlooked in film but I thought was excellent in this was the lighting. And lighting is very key when it comes to film or really any type of video because 
if you have bad lighting, then it, it can it can ruin your shots. And I thought the lighting in this movie was excellent. And another thing that kind of caught me by surprise that I really enjoyed was a former guest of mine was actually in this film, Alexander Stein, who you might remember from the Wild Men episode that I did a couple of months ago. He had a role in this film, and I knew he looked familiar, and I was like, is that one of the guys that I interviewed from New York? And sure enough, when the end credits were rolling, I saw his name. So shout out to Alex if you are listening to the show. It was it was great to see him. But you should definitely check out The Last American Guido, now available on iTunes. But that's not all we talk about in this interview. We also discuss Vito growing up in New Jersey, how he discovered his passion for film. And not only that, he also works in law enforcement. And he was on duty on the day of September 11th, 2001. So you'll be hearing stories from someone who actually experienced 9-11 firsthand, as well as Hurricane Sandy and how it affected the production of The Last American Guido. So a lot of very insightful stories, a lot of good advice on filmmaking, and it was just a really, really fun conversation. So without further ado, I present to you my conversation with Vito Labruno. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience, here with my very special guest. He is a director of film named Vito Labruno. Vito, welcome to the show. Thank you, Derek, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, First thing I wanted to ask you, um, where exactly are you from? I'm from Jersey City, New Jersey. It's basically uh, like a five-minute tunnel ride across from Manhattan in New Jersey. Basically... um, like a couple of minutes from like Manhattan, like on like right on the water on the Hudson River. Oh, nice, nice. Um, growing up in New Jersey, what were what were some of your interests? Because I'm from Florida. I'm born and raised, and I haven't lived anywhere else, and I've never been to the Northeast. So, what was it like growing up in the Northeast? And what were some of your interests? I mean, I, it was really great. Uh, basically. Where I grew up, it, it was more of a city, and, and basically we hung around on street corners, uh, on people's porches, more than like parks and, and, and stuff like that. And, and basically, you played a lot of sports. Like when when I was younger, like there was at least twenty to thirty kids in my neighborhood. Like at one time, people like every time you were out, there'd be like ten people, and we were always able to like play sports. Like no matter what what, what season it was for the sport, we would play. Uh, on the street, so it was a lot of sports and, and stuff like that, and just hanging around, having fun, jumping around, and then, uh, you know, we went to the movies in the summer, we did the summer movie thing, we would walk, walk to the cinemas all the time and stuff, and it was just a great experience, because it was like, like I said, it was, there was always action, there was always, you know, something to do, like you went outside your house, no matter what time it was. Uh, what type of movies were you into uh, growing up, since you said you were big into the, the summer movie scene? Um, growing up, more like I would say, I want to say action movies and, and, and thrillers. But I'm talking like when I was really a younger, younger. And then it's funny how it turned. As I got older, I, I began love having love for comedy and, and stuff like old school and movies like Wedding Crashers and all that. But 
growing up, it was more like thrills and stuff, and I really was into uh, Sylvester Sloan movies, like like uh, First Blood, and, and, and mm-hmm. then, actually before that, when he did Rocky and Night Hawks, those were like a couple of really movies that inspired me, you know, to, to even get into film, stuff like Bad Blood, Scorsese, and, and like uh, Goodfellas, and, and, and uh, Mean Streets, and, and, and most, a lot of Marty Scorsese's movies, uh, I was really into that kind of stuff. Yeah, Martin. And, and I, I really... John Carpenter, like I love The Sneak from New York. It was one of like my favorite movies. I could watch that like a hundred times, and, and I love like Halloween. The, 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 like a, a thriller. Yeah, I, I'm actually a pretty big John Carpenter fan myself. Um, I haven't seen Escape from New York in quite a while, but another movie he did uh, is one of my favorites, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Even though it's so over the top, I, I love that movie. I love Kurt Russell's performance in it. Yeah, that's a good one, too. I, I like that one. Uh, what about uh, The Thing? That was pretty... I mean, like you don't get a lot of recognition for that, but I mean, that was a good uh, little horror film. Yeah, it was. It was good. And, and Scorsese's really good, too. Um, probably my, my favorite movie of his that, that I've seen is, is one that I would probably put in my top ten, and that would be The Departed. Uh, that was just on last night on OSC. Oh, nice. I liked The Departed up to a point. I, at the end of the movie, I just it lost me with, I don't know, there was just too many people getting shot, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I can see that. Too, uh, too far. Yeah, yeah, there was a, a lot of death going on there at, at the at the end. So no, I I, I totally get that. It was just great, and, and then like it's just like they're on an elevator and he shoots him. And the believability factor, I was like, okay, how many people could just possibly get shot? Here, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. You mentioned movies like Rocky were ones that inspired you to to get into film. Was it just? those specific types of movies or was there you know some other factor that made you decide this is what i want to do well the, the rocky actually the, the uh, character it's based on it was this guy uh chuck Lepner. he's from bayonne new jersey which is the it's a like border town of where i live from jersey city it's like the border on the borderline of jersey city and basically he fought muhammad ali and to, to, he fought the distance with Muhammad Ali, and like he was like it was a really great story of an underdog, and he fought Muhammad Ali. I mean, he didn't like almost win like Rocky, but so that kind of hit home. I, I kind of like the whole underdog story. Just Sylvester Sloan himself, like was really poked and a struggling actor, and you know they they, they wanted to like buy the screenplay off him and didn't want him to star in it, and he fought to be like the main star, and then he actually wound up being a huge star by like standing his ground instead of like selling out. You know, that fell on the screenplay. That's true. So, That's true. That kind of hit home with me, you know. Now, did you go to college uh, for film? I went to college for business management, and I thought I would never use it. And then it wound up that using uh, producing a film, I kind of had managed the whole production, so it kind of I guess it helped me in a way. But I wish I would have went to film school instead, but. It just wasn't, you know, growing up, it wasn't like that. Like, your parents wouldn't want, like, where I'm from, like, they would be like, you're crazy, you'll never, you know, movies are impossible to make it into, and they wouldn't, like, want to send you to school to, you know, for film. Like, you had to, like, go for something else, but you can get a job in, you know what I mean? Which kind of, uh, it kind of, like, slowed me down a little bit. I think if I went to film school, I would have probably got into this business quicker than in my 30s, you know? True. True. And one thing about filmmaking now as opposed to back then is that, you know, through 
YouTube, Vimeo, and really social media, it's it's so much easier to do it now than it was back then because really anybody can do it because camera quality is really good. Uh, really, you can make a film with your iPhone if you, know, if you absolutely have to, and it's, it's just so much easier than, than it was back then. Absolutely. I mean, I used a Red Epic to, to film my movie, that, that I, and, and, like, you don't need as much lighting. You don't need the equipment because it's uh, HD. I mean, it's uh, digital. So it basically saved me a lot of money with the budget because, you know, in a movie when they're using film, how many trucks and how much equipment you need for that. Mm-hmm. And I would have never been able to pull that off maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago. And, and these cameras are getting better and better, too, you know. It's like they keep coming out with new ones. It's like not, it's, and it makes more sense just to rent a camera for production than to buy one. There's like two years to have a better one. When you buy the camera, it's already outdated, basically. Right, right. And then you, you know, you buy lenses and everything, and it's, it's just ridiculous. But yeah, that, that was one of my things I was going to bring up how filming in HD and filming digital it really helped me. Like even in my, on the short film I did before this, I did it on a Canon 5D, and it, it got really good quality out of that, and it really helped with, with like a very limited budget to make a good, a good movie, you know. Oh, definitely. So how how was it that you actually got involved with the film industry? Well, I mean, I always uh, like start at the beginning, uh, like. I was, I always told a lot of stories, in my neighborhood, every time that something happened at a big event, I would tell the story to the people that weren't there. I, I just enjoyed, like, telling stories, making people laugh. So, uh, I mean, I enjoyed that aspect of it, and, and they had an open casting call. Well, but let me go back to even before that. I was in eighth grade, you know, filming a movie called Wise Guys, like, a few blocks from my school. So I cut out at lunch, and I met Danny DeVito and Joe Piscopo, and they were both, like, from New Jersey, and they were like, they had trailers, they were movie stars, and like, like Danny DeVito talked to me and my friends, and it was, it was like one of the coolest things ever. And like from then on, every time a movie was filming in my neighborhood, I would make sure I would go and watch. I was just, I always wanted to do something, whether it be acting or like, like writing and directing. Well, like in that day, really, like I said, if two guys from New Jersey could make it this far, I could make it too, you know? So that, that, and then when I was 18, I was in college and they had an open casting call for the Bronx Tale. At a YMCA in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I went to it. It was for the lead, and I got a call back, so I, I was able to. I went to the city, New York City, at Tribeca Studios to read for the part. Obviously, I didn't get the part, but that was a whole. That was a great experience, you know. It was, I was nervous. I actually thought I had a chance to be in the Bronx Tale, so I was kind of psyched for a few days. But, but uh, so after that, I, I, I always really loved movies, and, and like so, I started writing, and then. Uh, when I started writing, I met a, a producer from my neighborhood just a few blocks away. He, he, you know, he just made a small feature film, and now he was going to make a short film. And I worked on that with him as an associate producer, and he kind of taught me the ropes. And uh, then I, 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 have, I had the screenplay, which I want to do next. It's called Don Alabib. It's about a, an adopted Indian boy who takes over a, a mob family and like brings Eastern sensibility to violent and violent business. And uh, so that was the whole, it was, a, it was a comedy, basically a mob comedy where this, this, this Indian is adopted by a mobster and eventually he takes over. And, and uh, I was going to, I pitched that to a producer from L.A. And he, he worked for Henry Winkler. And the next thing you know, Henry Winkler called me 
this was like a, a couple of weeks later to tell me how much he enjoyed the story and everything and then I shouldn't give up on it and, and that made me like take my writing to the next level and I, I went to a writing coach in Manhattan so like an NYU professor and I, I was able to get the structure of the story down pat so I had really good sketch comedy and, and, but I, I don't think I had the structure of course so so once I got down, down pat I wrote uh, a short film called Business is Dead about a funeral director who sells body parts to cover his gambling debts and we shot that in a funeral home that my friend owns because like basically I wanted to shoot a movie somewhere cheap where I had three locations and my friend said well I have a funeral home write something about a funeral home so, we, so I wrote that and kind of I won a couple of festivals like about best short film and I won best director at another festival so that kind of got like a, a buzz going and I knew that I had something there because like a couple of the, the um the festivals had like 100 people, 200 people, and you know, it got standing ovation. It was a really great time, and uh, just to watch them laugh at the jokes and everything, I, I, I knew I had something, so I said, next I want to make a feature. And that's what led me to make The Last Word Guido. So, Henry Winkler, and for those who may not know who that is, he played the Fonz on Happy Days. He called you to say that he, he enjoyed your story. Yeah, he said that I put him in a really fun world, and you know, he asked me if I made up a lot of the characters or if they, what people actually know. And I said, well, growing up in Jersey City, there's so many different uh, type of people. And, and, and actually, I do take a lot of my characters from people I know, but, you know, I embellished them a little bit. So he basically told me that I have a great story, and if I could just get the structure in down pat, that, uh, that it might go somewhere. And, and I knew, like, he wouldn't just call me a waste of time, you know. Once, when I got that call, I knew I had something just to have to get better because you know you always think your screenplay is ready and it's like ready to be pitched and everything but you, it's like it's never ready and you can't rush I learned through the years that you can't rush that kind of stuff because if it's not perfect nobody in Hollywood's gonna give it a second look or find right. the film you know I mean but I wish I would have known that back then because that was a big chance for him to read my screenplay but you know I was just so eager to break into the business and you know you, you gotta just keep writing drafts and drafts and read it over with your friends and you just, it, it takes a lot to get it like ready to be shot you know the fact that you were endorsed by the Fonz automatically makes you the coolest guest I've ever had on the show that, that's awesome <laughs> that is well, so I'll cool the morning and hack and this is fun well the reading this is how I got to uh, this is how I got the, the picture to a producer that worked for him basically I'm a Jersey City police officer well now I'm in the U.S. Marshall Task Force but at the time I was in patrol and, and uh, they were doing a Henry was trying to do a, a like a reality show on our emergency squad they actually filmed the pilot episode it, it fell through but anyhow there was a producer in Jersey City doing a show and, and, and another cop told him about my mob company and I pitched it to him really quick on the phone and so Henry Winkler calls me, right? I'm, I'm like, I, I was doing laundry. I was in a bad mood. I, the stock market was down. I was losing money. It was just a bad day. And, and, and I, I think it was one of my friends fooling around. And I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah, this is not Henry Winkler. You know, I said, but I'm going to play. I'm going to play. You know, you know, keep going. And then he, then he told me who he got my phone number from and everything. And then he talked so, like, he don't talk like the font. I mean, he talks so really, really well. He's well-spoken and everything. So I kind of knew it wasn't my friend playing around. And it was, like, embarrassing. I, I, was, I didn't believe that it was Henry Winkler at first. And I kind of made a fool of myself for, like, a minute. And <laughs> that was funny. But, you know, I was pumped up for, like, a month after he called me. But in the reality of everything, he didn't, like, buy the screenplay or option it. 
So I had to go back to the drawing board, you know. But it was, like I said, it, that was one of the main things that made me keep going. I really put extra time and hard work into writing. Like, because I knew, like a lot of people told me, there was no way he would just call you if that was like at least, you know, 10 minutes of the time if that wasn't good. You know, so. And still, to, to get an endorsement from somewhat like that had to be, you know, really good motivation to get better. And you mentioning that you've kept writing and writing and writing, a lot of people are afraid to fail when it comes to that kind of stuff. And when, and when you're working in the film industry, you can't. And to me, half the fun is is actually failing because that's the best way to learn. I mean, you can go to school for it and everything. You can take writing classes. You can take you know, filmmaking classes, acting, but the best way to learn is to just jump in and do it. Yeah, I mean, you gotta, and then, like, after a while, you can't wait for, like, Hollywood to call, you know what I mean? You can't wait on other factors or other people. You just gotta do something yourself, whether it be a three-minute short film that costs, like, a $100 film, or even, like, a, you know, 10, 12 minutes, anything, you gotta just do something eventually that's gonna put you on the map, or, or at least make you express yourself and if you fail at least you tried to do it you know that, that's where that's the mentality I took for the feature film I'm like I, I, I'm getting older and how many shorts can I make I want to make a feature and, and it seemed like a really big task at the time but we pulled it off and, and, and when you when you watch the film you'll, you'll understand I mean it's a really we had good production value we're getting a lot of good buzz about the film and I had like a like four screenings in, in New Jersey they were like sold out at a movie theater, and that was a lot of fun. That was when when we first uh, the first draft of the film came out, and uh, just watching everybody laugh at the jokes and everything uh, like that, that. That's my favorite part of this whole thing is being in the theater when somebody is watching the film and enjoys the film. You know. Right, right, and and speaking of that film, it, it the one you're talking about, you said is your first feature is the Last American Guido. Uh, what gave you the idea? to write that story, and what is that story about? Well, like, I had, a, I had, a, I had like, three older brothers, like, and they were kind of, and this was, I'm talking late 80s and early 90s, they were Guidos, but, like, Guidos, like, nowadays are totally different than what, what like, when I was growing up. Like, it was, they were proud to be Guidos, you know what? The, the, the swagger, the clothes, the, 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 uh, the food. Like it wasn't like nowadays with Jersey Shore and everything, people like kind of more laugh at these types of leaders. But so anyhow, I, I hung out with my brothers. Like they took me out to clubs and everything. I was like not even probably a drinking age. But uh, so I watched all their you know episodes and everything else. So then I started. I got older, you know, and I started going out with my friends. And like I looked at my brothers, and I'm like, if they had to go back into my world, they would be so outdated and everything, you know. And they wouldn't fit in. So I thought, what about if my brother, like, like the, basically, the, the, just the story is the guy's fiance cheats on him, and he has to go back out, into, and he's like 40 years old, and his fashion is faded, and his hairline is receded, you know, and he got to go back into <laughs> the world that, that, that passed him by. So that's where I got the idea. And then it took me so long to make the movie that now it's like I'm the last American Guido, you know. I was 43, <laughs> and I would probably be totally outdated if I went back with these kids out there now, you know. Now, how how was the the production of the film? Like, I actually making is this this was your first you know feature movie 
that you made, you wrote and directed it. So how, how was that whole process? Well, we started, uh, I, I had a casting agent. I, like, I, I knew who I wanted to play a lot of the parts with, with actors that were friends of mine and, and, and just people I saw in uh, smaller stuff on TV and stuff. So, But I still needed a casting agent because it's hard to really get through to some people without having a casting agent talking to their agents. Because when you're making a short film, like people will come and do it for you, but when you're doing a feature, you got to go through their agents. So that was like one of the best things I did because I was able to audition really good actors in New York City because I lived so close and, you know, I just was a train ride and I was there and we had the auditions there and, and um, I got a really a lot of talented people a couple from LA just from auditions and then um, she was able to get me a couple of people that I wanted for the movie like uh, Al Sepienza from The Sopranos and and uh, Robert Costanzo from, like he was doing a bunch of stuff like The Racer and Saturday Night Fever and all this. So, and, and these people just fit my characters perfect. That, that, that's who I wanted to have in, to be part, part of the film and then I was able to get that together. And then um, and location scouting is a little different for, for uh, you know, an independent feature. Basically, I'm going to businesses, I know the owners or I know of the owners and I'm, it, it's a lot, but you can't like just say, I want to film on October 13th. You know, you have to film when they're closed or when they want. So you're not really, I wasn't paying a lot of people to use their place where I would like, I would buy, like if it was a deli, I would buy food there and they would let me use the deli, but you have to plan around that. So, so logistics is so important because you got, you, let's say you got the deli on Mondays, you got to get all your deli scenes in on two Mondays. Because basically we only shop for 14 days. So basically locations was like, I had to really think logistically how I wanted to shoot the film and you want to have the location be very close to each other, like within like a couple of blocks so you don't have to travel with the, the cast and crew and, and you know, so, so that, that came into play. That was a big thing. Once I set that up, so now you have, I had 14 days to shoot this movie, which was an hour and a half. So any like this, you know, anything that we didn't get, we, it was hard to even go back and film it again because we had people that had to go back to LA, we had equipment to be returned. So anyhow, I'm 11 days, 11 or 12 days into the shoot and we get Hurricane Sandy, which was, like I said, this is the first movie feature on film and I got, I'm getting hit with Hurricane. Like, what kind of luck is this? <laughs> if I actually wanted to shoot on the day of the hurricane, I'm like, maybe it's not gonna be that bad. Luckily we canceled it. So um, basically, everybody lost power. Uh, most of the, the cast, I couldn't even get, communicate with them. We had no power, they had no internet, mm -hmm. people's houses got flooded. Like, I was just basically worried about um, my house and my family, and, and I, I didn't, like, I was worried about the movie, but I couldn't even think about the movie because of, of what was going on, you know what I mean? It was like, if I had to think it for five days about the movie, I would have been, like, sick, but since everything else was going on around me, I kind of forgot about the film for a few days, and I had these Honda generators, I had, I had an equipment truck, like, like parked near my house, I had behind the generators from the movie, and I was able to power the house, so that was one good thing, but, like, fuel was really tough, and so finally, after, like, four days, you know, where I, I sent an email to the whole cast, let's finish this, and I got it, like, I'm really eternally grateful for everybody, because they knew what I had on the line, like, the actors, the, the crew, and everybody just came together, and I guess everybody was stir crazy from being in, in like, a dark house or whatever, so everybody came together, and we finished the film. Uh, we finished the last three days after the hurricane, and thank God because like when you have an independent film, like equipment has to was rented and trucks and and just actors had to go back to L.A. and actors had other projects. You know, you you really can't say let's shoot it in a few weeks. You know, so everything had to be done. 
at that time. So I was able to finish it. I lost several locations. Like I had a really cool New Jersey diner, but they had no power. So I basically had to rewrite a little of the script and film those scenes in the social club. So that kind of, and I had a really great kickboxing gym, which I was going to film a whole, with a whole class for kickboxing and everything. And, and I had to film that in the social club. So that kind of put a damper. But, um, I actually lost the supermarket, which was, it's really hard to get a supermarket, like to film it, especially when you're an independent film. They don't really oh, yeah. know anything. And, yeah, so I lost the main supermarket. I went out of business, actually. But oh, wow, that we, sucks. We got, so we were filming at a house in Maywood, New Jersey, and it was a really cool supermarket, and we were getting our food there. So one of our producers talked to the manager, and he goes, What are you guys doing? And we're like filming a movie. So he was like, kind of really interested. So when we lost the first supermarket, we went to him like and kind of begged them. It was like right after the hurricane, we had like, that was the last few days of shooting midnights in the supermarket, and he, he kind of was reluctant about it, but we had, we paid him a little bit more than we, we could, and he let us film there, and I, that was really great, because, I mean, the color and everything, the, the produce, and I'm, I'm just saying that the, the funeral, you know, the, uh, the supermarket was really cool, and it was a really, it really upped the production than the last supermarket I had, you know, so, if anything, that was a silver line. And we got that place because like 25% of the film was filmed in a supermarket. So, that, that's, so uh, yeah, the, hur- the hurricane set us back, but luckily it didn't re- demolish the film because I wouldn't have been able to, I had no money left to, to continue, you know, an extended up here. I think that's just a phenomenal story how this, you know, huge storm hits the Northeast because I, I remember seeing it on the news when it happened and you know seeing footage and photos of all the damage that it caused cuz you know people in the northeast aren't used to a hurricane you, you when you hear of a hurricane you think of it hitting you know the southeast where i live but you know i think it's awesome that you guys were able to to band together despite what happened and seeing all the damage that it caused to still get the film done that that's actually a really inspiring story that's that's awesome yeah, I mean, I've got to give credit to everybody. Like, they just, like, everybody just cared for it more. We were, like, more of a family. It was a lot of fun on the uh, on set and everything. There was no, like, big pressure. And, and everybody worked so hard. People were getting paid, like, almost nothing to be in this. You know what I mean? And they just worked so hard, hard just out of passion. And they knew that my passion to finish it and, and how, how I felt about doing the movie and what I had at stake. And it wasn't like a, like a, a studio production. Like, everybody just cared and like I tell you, I couldn't believe the uh, response I got when I did send the email because, you know, it was, our, it was just a hurricane and you think that people would be like, you know, I can't do it or I'm, I'm going to, you know, I need it some time, but everything just came back so fast for me and I'm like really grateful and I hope to use a lot of those actors and actresses again if I do another project. Now, did you know pretty much the entire cast and crew before you filmed the movie or did you meet a lot of them you know, through this project? I probably knew 20% of the cast before, like just the actors that I know. And then I met a lot of them through the project, uh, you know. And, and the crew, I didn't know, barely. I just, like, I, I just knew the DP uh, for a few months, but I didn't know any of the crew. And those guys are really cool. And I just, every time I see them, like, it's like, hey, you know, it's, it's like really, like, I'm seeing an old friend because we all, we got really close. And those, uh, those two weeks and like my brother Andrew Labruno he was one of the executive producers he helped me he was on the set every single day 
and 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 then one of my childhood friends, David Hinahan, also was an adventure physician. He was on the set every day, and like my brother's wife came and decorated the set. Like we we, we have a scene in the nightclub where they're instead of VIP booths, they they lay in beds, and uh, she went out and bought all this like posh uh, bedding at a department store, and she set it up like when you see it, it looks really great. And then of course we returned it as a tag on to get a refund, but uh. So like that decoration and stuff like that, my family helped me and they bought food and you just need that. Like in an independent film, you need that, all the help you can get extras, like a lot of extras with friends and family, you know? So, but then, you know, there was club scenes where I needed 50 extras, so I had to pay, I had to pay for extras in those scenes because I couldn't get that many. Mm-hmm. But, now, one one thing I did want to ask you, and I, I like to ask this for any you know director or actor or anyone who's worked on some type of set, because there's always at least one. What is one funny on set story that happened during Last American Guido? All right, there's a lot of stories. I mean, there was a few. Well, I'll just start with one of the best stories. Uh, we were filming behind the church, which we got permission from the church, and. So it was really late, and it, it, was, it was like it was actually the day, it was like the first day back to shooting after the hurricane. It was cold out. Like our, our when we shot the film, it was like 60, 70 degrees, beautiful. Once the hurricane hit, weather just changed dramatically. Windy. It, it was like in the 40s. It was rough. So we're outside in the back of a church. It's like maybe 12:31, almost one in the morning. We're filming a scene where a girl's breast gets touched. You know, hey, we're at a church. That's the whole. That was funny to begin with. <laughs> and we're making noise. So my wife, like, it took her a while to believe in this movie stuff, like, until she saw my short and the response I got for my short film. So she kind of thinks this stuff is easy, and she's like, are you going to be home by 11 o'clock tonight? You've been out until the middle of the night every night for, for 12 days, you know what I mean? So I said, I'll try. So now she comes to the set, this huge dog, it's like a pit bull black lab, it's like 80 pounds. And then, like, none of the crew and cast know her, though, really. Uh, and then, like, especially the cast in this particular scene. So they're in the middle of a long scene. It's cold out. They're trying to get it right. My wife storms the set with my dog. And she gets up to the, she gets up to us. It's just up, like, are you effing kidding me? She said. And then, like, my lead actor turns around and he's all pissed off that she ruined the take. And everybody's just in awe. They thought it was, like, a neighbor telling us we were making too much noise. They didn't know it was my wife. And I was like, I'll be home soon. And then I said, reset. She walked away. And I said, reset. And we went right back to filming. Everybody just went right back to the scene. And afterwards, I'm like, no, nah, it was my wife. She's a little pissed off. And that's like, she kind of apologized. She's like, apologized to the cat. She had a few beers. And she was like, just the pressure of everything, you know, got to her that night. And I don't even know how she found this church. I mean, it's like seven blocks from my house. And it's like, I don't even, and like, she didn't grow up where, where like, it was our neighborhood, but she didn't grow up going to that church. So I don't even know how she found it, but she found it. And that was kind of funny. And then we had, like, a fight between the two executive producers. That was kind of funny. I mean, it wasn't funny when it happened, but afterwards it was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every every set has at least one one funny story, so I, I always have to ask. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, you were a police officer. Now, why why were you are, – are you still currently a police officer? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a police officer. I'm in the U.S. Marshal's Task Force in, in uh, New Jersey. Uh, basically, it's a bunch of uh, agencies that work together with the U.S. Marshals and basically going after fugitives uh, and people with criminal warrants. But I was in patrol for the first 15 years, so I learned a lot. And I, you know, it actually helped me with my writing, being in patrol. I just met so many different people 
and that that that, that helped me like in storytelling also being a police officer. Oh, I can imagine so. Uh, what what was it that made you want to become a police officer? Um, my brother is well, he's retired now, but he he was a sergeant. He retired, and I like he growing up, I watched him, and his friends were always around, and and, and they were cops, and I thought it was like a cool job, and you know they had a you know it's basically you're outside all the time, and I like to be outside. I like to be you know you're not your own you're not your own boss, but to a point you have a lot of independence while you work, and and I, it seemed like a really cool job. My brother seemed to enjoy it, and you know it was good job security and and. and it kind of the fun part is helping people, not arresting people more, but helping people when they call you, even for the littlest thing like directions and all this. Just um, being able to help somebody, I just I felt good about it, you know. And um, it actually helps me with writing because I had a lot of time to write. You know, I, I used to work three to eleven, three at three in the afternoon to eleven o'clock at night. So from like maybe eight o'clock in the morning to two o'clock, I would be able to write because that was a good time when you when I first wake up, I find. I can write the best and be the most creative and have the most, you know, energy and stuff. So that really helped me because of that shift that I worked in patrol. And, uh, I, you know, being a police officer, it's, it's a really cool job, I think. And, and it's getting harder these days with uh, social media and everything. And, and you know, the, the everything that's going on right now, but it's still a really cool job. And no matter what happens in, in, the, in, the, in the country and how people feel, we're always going to, like, be there. We're always going to do our job, you know. It's not going to get us down and all. We're always going to go out there and, and continue to do the job. But for the majority of the public, uh, they really treat us well, and I think that there's a lot of respect. And it's 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 misinterpreted, like on CNN and stations like Fox, and uh, people think like there's a you know what's going on in the country that people hate cops, but it's totally not like that. And when we go out to uh, to arrest somebody, like. Basically, the community really embraces us, and they try. Everybody tries to help us, you know. So now, I, when I was doing my research, I read that you worked during nine eleven, and I wanted to ask: one, is that true? And two, if, if the answer is yes, what was that like? That was like the worst, one of the worst times being the cop. That was like sad, like being sad, and it was one of the worst times to work. Uh, the only other time was like when a friend of mine was like uh, shot and stuff, but that's a whole other story. But those like that was one of the worst. Nine eleven was like I remember when the first plane hit in the, like like Jersey City is right across. I, I used to be able to see the World Trade Center from my house, like because I, I was I'm kind of close. I used to live close to the water, so the first plane hit and everybody thought it was like an accident. So um, I remember uh, a cop on the radio saying how a plane hit, so I actually drove down to the waterfront to like see what was going on and like uh, I, the second plane hit and I kind of you know it wasn't an accident you know it was crazy and uh, the big explosion people started running we were in Jersey City like across from us and everybody's running around panicking so then like I had to go right to work everybody had to basically go to work and we had a lot of people coming over from New York to go to the hospital the local the Jersey City hospital they were taking on the ferry and it was just like mayhem and uh, basically my, the, my partner who I worked with at 3 in the afternoon I didn't see him 11 o'clock at night because like he was at, over in New York like helping uh, you know victims get back to uh, Jersey to get medical treatment and everything so I was like worried about what, what else my partner I had to work with somebody else basically it was just everybody like, it was really a lot of solidarity everybody came together and I, I just never saw the public you know that much 
like everybody just came together at that time, and it was just a great that and, and that, that was a great feeling of solidarity. And and I remember uh, a few nights later, we were taking supplies. The, the Jacob Javits uh, had a bunch of uh, there was like a bunch of trucks and the stuff were going there with supplies, and that's where you had to take it because they couldn't fit it anywhere else. And uh, so we had a bunch of trucks with water and like all different supplies. So we escorted them to the Javits Center, and on the way back, it like. There was no traffic. It was like, you know, the hat was kind of shut down. And there was like crowds of people cheering us as we were going back to the Holland Tunnel to go back to Jersey City. And it was just like, like you know, something. I mean, in the midst of this like tragedy, I just felt like really good. I'm proud to be, you know, a police officer. I'm just proud to be like American, you know. Oh, absolutely. And, and so, but, it, but it was a really, like said, stressful and, you know, a couple of weeks, like, you know. I actually went to Ground Zero one day, one night actually after my shift, and that was a whole another like it was just crazy. It was like a, like a war zone, you know, and a lot of stuff going on over there. But but uh, that was then like I never took a ferry from Jersey City to to the World Trade Center in my life, and it was like always available to me. And the only time I took it was back from Ground Zero after helping out. And I'm like, I missed out on, like, I always took it for granted. Like, I live so close to New York and everything. And I would, I never took a ferry to, to the World Trade Center until that night. And it was crazy. You like, sometimes you take that stuff for granted, you know? Oh, but yeah. I, I can understand the feeling. And, you know, you mentioning everyone thinking that the first plane was an accident. And it's one of those things that you'll always remember where you were when that happened because of, you know, how it affected everything. And it, it changed everything, you know, forever. Because I, I remember being in high school when that happened and just, you know, spending the rest of the day watching the news coverage and then actually seeing the second plane uh, hit the second building. And it, it was it was probably the most surreal thing that I think I've ever seen and probably ever will see. But I, I can't imagine... You know, because I, I was just watching it from TV on the other side of the country. I can't imagine what it was like, you know, being there. Well, you know what? It was this, when when the second plane hit. I didn't see the plane coming in, like because it kind of went behind the first building and hit. Like, like so, I just saw the pop and an explosion, and I didn't know it was a plane. I thought it was like a missile or something, really. And and I called up, uh, I called my brother up, and I'm like, holy shit, that's another shooting missile or something. And he was like, kind of still home watching the news, and he's like. No, you asked, it was another plane. And I was like, oh, because, like, in my vantage point, like, the plane come from behind one world, one trade center and hit the other one. So I, I kind of didn't see it was a plane, and that even was, I'm like, are they shooting missiles now? But it wasn't. But that was, like, a really, like, I never forget the way the second tower fell, because I saw that fall, like, it felt, like, so slowly, and just, like, the images I'll, I'll never forget, like, the, the explosion from the plane hitting, and, just the, and the second tower falling was just so slow, and, like, it just melted down. You know, and it was just like, I don't even like to really, talk. I haven't really talked about it much, since, you know, for, for a couple of years, but uh, just thinking about it, and I think it's like disturbing, but uh, hopefully that'll never happen again, you know. Yeah, let's, let's definitely hope so. Um, a couple of more things I wanted to ask you. Um, do you have any upcoming projects in the works, like maybe, you know, stuff you're writing or maybe some other uh, films that you have in the works? Yeah, I the, the film that, that I pitched to Henry Winkler about the uh, adopted Indian boy who takes over the mob family. I, I'd like to do that as uh, my next feature. 
I, the budget would have been a lot more than this budget because there's some like action scenes and, and some, some like limited special effects, but there's more actors and just more, there's just more stuff going on. And so I was hoping that I would be able to do it as my second feature because I need more, more money to do it. So I have that and I have a, uh, another comedy called Legends in a Strip Mall about these uh, three New Jersey uh, street performers. They basically annoy like their local businesses in a strip mall and the owners of the business conspire and kidnap them and leave them in a cornfield in Nebraska. So they have to fight like to search how they got there and get back to New Jersey. So I have that, which is another feature that I would like to eventually uh, produce. And I'd like to write something else, maybe something serious, because I have three, I wrote three comedies, and I'm thinking of something, maybe a thriller or a cop, some kind of police things. I never wrote, I've never written a story about police, so I have a lot of those stories. But oh, I can imagine. I do it every day. I'm just bored with it when it comes to writing, you know. Oh, definitely. Like, I don't even watch cop shows. <laughs> watch either, so. uh, I I totally understand. And the last thing I wanted to ask you: uh, Do you have any like social media or you know website for Last American Guido or for yourself that you'd like to plug? Yes, um, we have the Last American Guido on Facebook. We have the Last American Guido on Twitter. Um, I have an Instagram for the Last American Guido, which is really cool. There's uh, interviews with the cast and and like really cool pictures. And also the link to watch the film is uh, on iTunes, just search The Last American Guido on iTunes and you can watch the film or the trailer there. And I have, last but not least, thelastamericanguido.com, which is the website which has a lot of different stuff about production, about the cast and crew, and also has the trailer on it, some funny photos and stuff of our uh, screenings that we had in New Jersey. Fantastic. Well, Vito, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I look forward to watching The Last American Guido. Thank you, Derek, and uh, good luck with the show, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you once again to Vito LeBruno for that fantastic interview, and don't forget to check out The Last American Guido on iTunes. Next week, we will be looking into the world of podcasting and creating YouTube videos with my good friend Jeremy Branch. And don't forget to check out all of our shows on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and NerdCaveNetwork.com. Every Monday, we have the Derek Diamond Experience. Tuesday is the Nerd Cave Podcast. Every other Friday is Time for Comics. And now on Saturdays, we have the Pop Culture Palette. And be sure to check out YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Nerd Cave Network. But until next time, this has been another fantastic episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond. And we will see you guys next Monday. Listening to a Nerd Cave Network production.